All right, good morning, fellowship. How's everybody doing? You guys good? Awesome. You guys want to stand with me? Let's uh, worship together this morning, okay? Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins they are many. His mercy.
Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. We are glad you're here. If you're new with us, special welcome to you. We would love to help you get connected. Uh, probably today, best way to do it would be go to the newcomers gathering after service. You'll hear more about that at the end of service. A couple things we want to share with y'all. As you walked in, you would have to be fairly uh, unaware to, to not notice the Bible translation display. I actually noticed it. Um, I have an uncanny ability at unawareness, and I noticed it all over the foyer. Um, it is a really cool visual display of the Bible translation project going on among lots of different ministries. This one has, happens to be from Pioneer Bible Translators. And if you picked up a card, you noticed that they said their prayer is by 2033, in 10 years, that every language would be translated, um, the scripture would be translated. And so um, grab a card, pray for that to happen in the next 10 years. That would be a monumental step for the Great Commission. Um, next, uh, actually in a few weeks, our elementary team is going to put on a link retreat. And the link is between parent and child, guardian child, of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. Our elementary team does an incredible job of programming this weekend. They set the ball on a tee for you to engage in relationship, build memories, and just build uh, a spiritual experience with you and your child. So you can sign up on our app. About a year and a half ago, we started praying for a partner to come and join Hunter and I in Community Ministries, another small group's pastor. We prayed, we fasted, and the Lord answered our prayer in June when Peter and Beth Hammond decided to join our team. So would y'all welcome Peter and Beth? So this is the Hammond family. I'll go from uh, left to right. On the left, far left, is Noelle. She's a ninth grader at West. And then Elizabeth is a freshman at CCU in Denver. And then David is a senior at West. And then Beth and Peter. And then Claire is a seventh grader at Grimsley. And so they moved here on August 14th. Kids started school on August 16th. Their kids had never been to Arkansas. They are flexible. Uh, very flexible. Um, I sent this text to you, Peter, on February 18th this year. Random question of the day. We are looking to hire a small groups pastor to work on our small groups team at Fellowship Bentonville. We're thinking the ideal candidate would have a relational ministry philosophy, philosophy and wiring, enjoy shepherding about 50 small groups, have a disciple-making and leader multiplication heart and vision. Do you know anyone who would fit this description and would be excited about moving to Bentonville, Arkansas? Do you remember what you said? In typical Colorado vernacular, I said, bro, sounds like you're talking about me. <laughs> that is what you said. Uh, and I asked if you would be interested then. What, what did you say there? I said, uh, that is a big transition. We have never been to Arkansas. And we need to pray about that because uh, the ministry and the roots that were tied into Grand County in Colorado where we were, were deep. So that would take a moving of the Lord to do anything with, with where we were. Yes, and they did pray and they accepted our offer to come visit in May. Mother's Day weekend, May 13th. 
And Beth, when y'all visited in May, what, what would you say the chances were, what percentage chance of moving to Arkansas? I don't know that there's a percentage that equates to um, what I was feeling. It was a very, very low number. Uh, 0.25-ish? Yeah, I would say around there. Okay. So what changed between uh, May 13th and y'all moving here in August? Um, very clearly hearing from the Lord. Um, I was uh, on paper, it didn't make sense. And um, I assured our oldest daughter that, oh, don't worry, sweetie, we're not moving. <laughs> um, and I was kind of leaving it up to Pete to let the guys know who we loved, who we've had a long time relationship with um, over a number of years. Um, said, you're going to have to let them know that thank you, but no thank you. We love where we are and what we're doing. So, But I begged the Lord to put it on my heart as I saw um, Pete's excitement for the job and the transition um, growing. I said, oh, I think this is happening. Lord, would you make me excited about it as well? I don't want to just go because I'm going to submit and go. I want to be really excited about it. And um, he's brought me to that place, and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's a great story. We... We are really glad that the Lord has done that uh, in y'all's hearts. Let me uh, thank the Lord and uh, pray for baptism. We'll get to celebrate, continue celebrating through baptism. Lord, thank you. We give you praise. Thank you for moving in Peter and Beth's hearts and for their kids. And uh, we pray a blessing on their family uh, during this transition to Northwest Arkansas. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love that we experience new every morning. And Lord, we do pray for uh, this baptism that we would encourage the body uh, just through the, the testimony of obedience. And we trust you and we give you our lives fresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, good morning, fellowship. Um, what, a, what a beautiful morning um, to celebrate uh, new life in Christ. Um, here, here at Fellowship, we believe uh, that baptism is a outward expression of an inward face, um, proclaiming to you, to this mass of gentlemen, um, that someone has given their life to Christ um, and that they have decided to live for him. Um, and I want to introduce to you Brett, Brett Hitchcock. Um, he's one of the guys in, in our cell group. And I just want to tell you a little bit about the way that we've seen the Lord encounter him over the past, well, since December. Um, in December, um, uh, Elijah had invited him to come play in a brass band that for some reason we had started. Um, we met over there um, in the elementary theater um, every Wednesday for a few months, and then we went to cell group together, um, and through a really incredible, only God-ordained way, he used a brass instrument to change a life. And I want to tell you a little bit about the specifics. Um, it was evident from the beginning when I met Brett that the Lord was already working in him. He had a joy um, and a passion about him. But as we grew and as he grew, that joy deepened and, it, and it, it was enriched and it was clear that he had spent time with Jesus. He had a smile. He had a atmosphere about him that let people know just by the way that he was. He loved Jesus and it's amazing to see. And it's because of that today um, and the ways that we've seen the Lord change him that we're here um, to celebrate it together. And I'm more than happy to stand here and honor to do it with you. So because of the blood of Jesus, Brett, do you believe that he has paid for your sins and accept him as your Lord and Savior? Go take a seat right here. <clears throat> 
<laughs> Brett, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Woo! Come on! Let's stand. Let's continue to celebrate and worship the God who is on the move.
you guys stay standing for the reading of the word this morning. All right, I will be reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of your others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I don't know what else we need to say after reading that text. That is the text that we get. Uh, man, it's one that's been marinating in my heart and my soul over the last few weeks. Uh, the weight of it is setting in. Simply put, uh, we have before us one of the most foundational texts about Jesus Christ that exists in Scripture. It's for sure the focal point of, of the book of Philippians, um, but more than that, it's the focal point of God's entire story. It connects eternity past to eternity future, the first Adam to the second Adam, the the original newly created earth and what we will get to experience in new heavens and new earth. And so I'm telling you this to say I cannot do it justice this morning. Um, and I want to encourage each of us to read it over and over again over the next week, to dwell on this, to soak it up, to look up commentaries and really seek to understand what is being communicated about Jesus. And if that doesn't get you excited about the text that we have before us today, I have nothing else for you because the weight and power of what we're gonna see is gonna come from, from God's word. So we are in a, a series on Philippians. If you're new, welcome. Uh, we are now in Philippians chapter two. We're gonna work through it kind of section by section all the way up to Thanksgiving. And so I wanna kind of recap uh, a little bit of Philippians one, but really setting the stage for, as Paul starts with Philippians two, he's just showed us that the gospel is advancing even through trial and unknown. And because of that, here's how he continues the letter. So, because of all that, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy at all, and I find this kind of funny because it's almost like he's saying, all right, y'all know what Jesus has done. If you can find anything in there that brings you the least little bit of encouragement, right, anything that brings you hope or life or joy that stirs in you, surely you can find something. But if the good news of Jesus has done anything, then here's what I want you to do. Make my joy complete, or he says here in the ESV, complete my joy. Paul is communicating to them, I have found the joy in Jesus, all right? 
I've experienced it all. And the thing that would take it over the top that would complete my joy is if you can experience it too. If you can get to experience the same Jesus and the vision that he's created and cultivated in me, if I can see it played out in the people that I love so much, that will complete my joy. And Paul gives them two encouragements to see this come to fruition. He says, here's how you can complete my joy. The first one, I'm fully on board with, okay? It's this, complete my joy through unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So in chapter one, Paul highlighted how certain people are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry to gain something, but he's saying, hey, not with you. I need you to be unified. You don't have to love all the same things, but have the same love. You don't even have to agree on all the things, but have the same mind. Now, unity and fellowship does center on unity and doctrine. So in an ideal world, we all believe all of the right things about God. But when in the world and Christianity has that ever happened, right? There's differences of opinions. And so it's important to note that everything that we believe about Jesus falls into one of these categories. So whenever I have a theological disagreement with someone, this is the visual that comes to my head, and I have to ask myself, the topic that we're speaking on, where does this fall? Because there's different levels. Let me explain them. What I would call tier one is this central orthodoxy. So these are core aspects of our faith that for us to experience unity as the body of Christ, we have to agree on them. These are are things like the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus in that, that Trinity Godhead, the virgin birth, salvation not being by works, nothing we can own. These are things that we have to agree on. And then outside of that, there are things that I would call convictions. So these may actually have some biblical weight to them, and we develop these convictions about them, and they're scriptural evidence, but there's also in Scripture a little bit of movement for interpretation. For people to be able to see things a little bit uh, differently and have different godly opinions on. Things like gifts of the Spirit and what those look like today. Or church leadership models. We, We have an elder leadership model here. We find that from Scripture. But can we be in unity with churches who disagree and do something different? Then you have opinions, right? These are the outside things that probably don't have much scriptural weight at all. But they're still fun to think about and talk about and our opinions matter. And so an example would be, what does Jesus's DNA look like under a microscope? You ever thought about that? I don't know why you would have, but think about it, right? If your DNA comes from your mother and your father, and his mom is Mary, and his dad is the creator of the universe, what does his DNA strand look like? Okay, we're not gonna camp on it because it's just an opinion, and it doesn't really matter But there are other things that we do take as opinions and we start working them inward. And the only thing that should ever bring disunity in the church is when we can't agree on something in orthodoxy because someone's off. These are the core tenets of our faith. But what we do is we tend to take an opinion and start moving it uh, inward. One that I've seen a lot, um, I'm a parent of young kids and so I've seen this one quite a bit just in my life is school choice. Right? Should a kid be homeschooled or private schooled or public schooled or charter schooled or whatever? And really, that, that lives in opinion. We start to find some scriptural evidence of how we raise our kids, and over time, we start pushing it to convictions where hopefully every parent has a strong conviction about how they want to raise their kids, but then we start pushing it towards orthodoxy. 
and moralizing these opinions and then judging others for the ways in which they've chosen. It ends up, if we're not careful, actually dividing the church. And for years, tier two and tier three issues have caused divisions. And so I wanna remind you that you and I are gonna have different convictions about things, and that is okay. We can still be in unity. You can still be in unity with the people sitting next to you because unity is not uniformity. Unity is about believing the best and striving for oneness together as we work through these things. It's a famous uh, quote by, we think Augustine wrote it. That's why I have the question mark there. But it says this, in essentials, unity. So essentials being this orthodoxy. We've gotta be unified. In non-essentials, conviction and opinion, liberty, freedom, but in all of it, charity and grace for each other. The body of Christ has to learn to love each other in our differences and to show grace. And we each, as individuals, hold that responsibility. I tend to put it on you, you tend to put it on me, but scripture says that I have the weight of trying to live at peace with all men. So unity is tough, but I'm all in. The second thing that we see Paul saying about what it's gonna look like to follow Jesus in joy is a little bit harder, and it's complete my joy through humility. A little bit of dying to self every single day. Now, put yourself in this situation, right? Paul's in prison. Jesus is now gone from this earth. The gospel needs to move so that things don't die off. And what is his strategy? Well, as disciples are being made, he's saying, these are the two things that I really want you to get. Be unified in joy and die to yourself every day. And because of where it falls in all the text that's following this, I want you to see that this is not an application of following Jesus. Humility is the central embodiment of what a life centered around Jesus looks like. And this text is about to overwhelm us with that truth as we see it play out. Why humility is at our core. Because there's no following Jesus without humility. There's no participation in the gospel without humility. There's no identifying with Christ at all without humility. This has to define us. So as we move into kind of the more theological portion of the text, I want you to remember all of that is in the setting of Paul saying, I want you to be one and to please look out for each other, please. And I kind of see Paul at the end of his road and the closer we get to death, I think the, the clearer things can come into perspective about what actually matters. And he's saying, if you can get this, humility and unity, you'll be good because the religion that's most going to oppose the gospel in its movement and try to slow it down is not Mormonism, it's not Islam, it's not Buddhism, it is me-ism. It is believers focusing on our own interests, our own desires, what's true for us, right? What feels good for us, what's comfortable for us, what's best for us. But the truth is that dying to self is the most alive that any one of us will ever feel when we live in obedience to the words of Jesus. And I say that and I believe it, but there are times when I struggle to believe it. Why? I have a theory, okay? It's a theory. It's not orthodoxy. It's conviction, okay? I feel strongly about it, but I've shared this in here before because it helps actualize and visually see what it looks like for me to follow Jesus and get it out of this kind of theoretical world. And here it is. I believe that every human that has ever existed on this earth in some way follows this path of life, okay? Ecclesiastes says that from dust we came to dust we shall return. 
But over the course of our life, there's this striving for a peak, and it's a peak of fill in the blank, a peak of excellence, of influence, of athletic ability, of knowledge, of happiness, of wealth, whatever. We're all striving to to get to some peak, but eventually things begin to fade, and we begin to fade into obscurity and are no more, right? Some people get remembered, but most of us within two to three generations will be absolutely forgotten. This is like the third week in a row we've reminded you that you're not important <laughs> and you're gonna die, right? You're, you remember Abel's lullaby? We'll sing that in worship one day, I'm sure. But, but it's totally true. And we still, though, we strive, strive, strive to get to some level of influence. And I say that because in that striving, this idea of unity and humility rarely gets us there, if ever. And so it doesn't get put in front of us. And this is true for all of us. Me, you, every human that's ever existed runs this path of life, except one, except one. There's only one person in the history of the world who has not succumbed to this path of life. And it's not because his peak went higher, right? That's off the charts, we can't even see it on the slide. Or that his path to obscurity kind of went a little bit slower. It hasn't even fully happened yet. That's not why we worship Jesus. It's because he did not run this path. In fact, he completely flips it on his head. And this text that we're going to look through today lays out verse by verse how we see the path of life that Jesus chose to live and how it's way different than anything that we could ever imagine or anything that we've ever seen outside of him. And I believe with, it's, it's with this in view that we have to lock this into view for us to have any chance at that humility and unity that Christ calls for the church. So the gospels give kind of a firsthand account, right, of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. That's what they center on. Then you move into the Paul's letters and the epistles, and you start to see that theme play out throughout. So it's all there. But this section of scripture is a sacred account of the life of Christ. Many Scholars actually believe it was a hymn. We're not gonna sing it. I don't know the tune, but I want you to see visually what is communicated with words because as I've been reading through this and studying it, I'm like, Philippians, I know, one, you don't exist anymore, but if you did, I'm talking to you. Um, You probably don't know what a master class is, but Paul just gave you a master class in Christology, in the theology of, of Jesus. And so for us, 2,000 years later, as we go through it, I'm going to give some commentary on it, but just let these words soak in as we see the life that Jesus lived. So from the beginning, we see really clearly that Jesus's origin was different. So this, this section says, it starts with, though he was in the form of God. So Christ's origin story is that he has always existed. Colossians 1.16 shows us that, that he was at creation. He was a major part of creation, creation story. Jesus himself says that, hey, before Abraham was, I am. So if Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus did, how could he be in present existence before that? Well, it's because he is God. And we call this pre-existence before he you know, became human, the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, pre-incarnate just means before flesh. So before he entered earth as a human. And right out, off the bat, the Ecclesiastes verse that I referenced, the from dust you came, does not apply to, to Jesus because he did not come from dust. He came from heaven's throne. Like his, his origin point is from as high as you can get. And that's very, very important because when we see that, 
we see very clearly from the text that there's something amazing about what Jesus did not do and what he did do. So what did he not do? Well, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto or exploited for his own personal gain. There's different translations say different things, right? But what we see is that he actually, rather than holding on to that and saying, I'm up here, I'm gonna sit in the comfort of, of who I am as God, it says that he emptied himself. So this passage is a big one in scriptures, often referred to as the kenosis passage. And it's one of those texts where Paul clearly knew what he was communicating through the Holy Spirit. And yet, as English readers, it is very hard to capture the full extent of what Paul meant in these words. Jesus emptied himself. God emptied himself. Like, let that sit. What does that mean? Right? Can somebody help me? I've gotta, I'm gonna try to explain it, but if you know fully what that means, let's talk afterwards. There's no great definition for this Greek word that is translated emptied. It's called kanao, and it's used five times in the New Testament. We often translate it as emptying or making something void. That's the best we can come up with. But the question is, how can the eternal, all-powerful God take on human form and still be God? The simplest answer is that he is one person with two natures. It's very simple in words and difficult in comprehension, right? We call that nature, though, the hypostatic union. So this is the union of the two natures, the humanity and the deity of Jesus, in one being. And for this to have any shot at happening, the scripture tells us that Jesus had to empty himself. There's six plus kind of major theories of what this could mean and how Jesus could do this and not take away his deity. Um, things like he stepped into time. And so with that, any attribute of being God that is compromised by being in time, he just set aside. Or others would say that he still possessed all the attributes of God, but chose not to use some of them. And then others would even say that he gave all of that power to the Father for the Father to discern what it would look like for him to live on this earth. So how do we summarize it? I hesitate to give you any definitive summary because number one, I don't wanna be heretical. And number two, I don't wanna say more than the text says. All we see is that Jesus emptied himself, set aside some type of privileges in order to take on human form. And so it seems like the emptying is less this list of attributes of he's no longer omnipresent or he can't do this, but he can do this. And it's more of Jesus's whole incarnation story that we see from the text here. So him emptying his right to reside in the comfort and status of being God. But just for clarity, this was not an exchange, okay? Jesus doesn't become less God so he can become more human, Right? That's not what we see in Scripture at all. He never loses his deity. We see that in the life, death, and resurrection, his perfect life. But we, we also know there's something about Jesus that's different from the other members of the, the Trinity, right? We don't see a lot of evidence that God the Father needs to sleep, but Jesus did, or that God the Holy Spirit has to die, but Jesus did. And so he's fully God but, and fully man, and it's hard to capture his whole self. I don't wanna dwell on it any longer, mainly because Paul doesn't. Like, I wish he did. I wish right here he just took a long pause and then just explained, what do you mean by emptying? Like, wh what does this actually look like? Well, that's not what he does. And so I think we have to look at the text and what it tells us. What is emptying? It's that he took on the form of a servant. That is the greatest 
act of emptying. This word is doulos, okay? It's, it's a strong servant-slave type word. We often translate it bondservant, but here's the definition. It's someone who's devoted to another to the disregard of their own interests, right? That is a heavy but a worthy definition of Jesus, that he became a slave. And for God to do that, that is the ultimate emptying. And what that does is it actually leads him into this perfect life of obedience. He endured temptation. We see that in scripture, but he doesn't fall. You may look at this and go, well, why is his perfect life trending downward? Shouldn't that be going upward? Like he's perfect, he's God. But look at what he was obedient to, all the way to the point of death meaning every act of perfection and submission to the Father was one step closer for Jesus to the cross, every one of them. And the only way his sacrifice would atone for our sins, the sins of the guilty, is if he remained perfect throughout his whole life. Our elementary ministry is studying uh, the attributes of God uh, right now, and this is the attribute that they're on this morning. So if you have parent or if you have kids, ask them about this. Like, I heard you're learning that God is Perfect. Like, what does that mean? We asked our four-year-old Bill this week if he could think of anything in the world that is perfect, and I knew we would get something funny. And so he looks at his mom when she asked, do you know anything that's perfect? And he said, yeah, getting to hang out with my mom. And then he said, actually, I mean getting to hang out with my water bottle because it has lots of stickers. So my wife equates with the water bottle in our home. But us trying to, like a kid trying to imagine something that's perfect is really hard. Us trying to imagine what a perfect human would look like in today's world, it's impossible. But that is who Jesus was and is. He's got scars, but no flaws. Not a single one. And because he was perfect, that meant he was unlike any other human, which meant he could do things that no other human could do. So what in that liberty and that freedom, what does he choose to do? To die. To die and give his life as a ransom for many. He humbles himself all the way to the lowest possible place, the innocent dying for the guilty. And there's so many theories of what actually happened on the cross, right? We here at Fellowship tend to hold to the theory typically called substitutionary atonement. And basically what that means is that Christ was the substitution, the substitutionary sacrifice in a place that we deserved where he took on our guilt so that when our faith is in him, when we trust in him as Lord and follow him as Lord, we are found to be hidden in him. We are found to be innocent. He covers us. So this is in our doctrinal statement uh, online. Uh, if you've never read our doctrinal statement, I would encourage you to do that so you can know what type of church you're a part of. That would be a really healthy thing. But this visual of Christ's sacrifice and blood poured out is couched in generations of blood sacrifices and the anticipation of Messiah. One that people thought was just, he's just gonna stay at that high level, right? He's gonna come down and reign as king. But this is the way that he chose to come. But praise be to God that, like, that is not the end of the story, right? God highly exhausts him. He physically raises him from the dead. We gloss past this one, but if this isn't true, then everything we believe about Jesus is a sham. And there's so much historical evidence of the confirmation of his death. He actually died. He was buried. That tomb became empty, and there were confirmations from hundreds of people that actually saw and interacted with him before he ascended into heaven. 
And notice about, or on this chart, this is the first time that we see Jesus' path start to trend upward, which is a really important point that exaltation comes after servanthood. It comes after sacrifice, after humility. Do not miss that order that Jesus is laying out. So after his resurrection and his time on earth, he ascends, Christ flew, which is nuts, right? Acts 1, go read it. He ascended to the Father and was granted by the Father the name above all names, a name, the name Jesus, a name that we would only know if he did this, if he would come to earth and actually reveal himself to us. Another one of the greatest yet hardest aspects of Jesus's life because this ascension proves his deity, but he leaves his people. And so we trust his words that having the Holy Spirit is better, having God walking in us every day than just beside us every day. But we long for Jesus to come back. And when he does, scripture says that he will, recome, he will return just in the same way that he left, that we will see his resurrected body in all his resurrected glory. And not just his followers, but every human that has ever lived will stand before the king of kings and every knee will bow. Human, angel, demon, false god, you name it. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all will hail King Jesus once and for all. That is enough for us to worship. And lock that in because that is the Jesus that we together are going to worship here in just a few minutes. But I also get that not everybody in here believes everything that I just said, especially if you come from a different religious background, maybe you're exploring Jesus for the first time or deconstructing something about him. We're glad for anybody in that category that you're here. And I wanna make sure that this is really, really clear that every single thing we just talked about in regards to Jesus is important to understand about who he is because this does not fit with the Jesus of Mormonism. This does not fit with the Jesus of Islam, right? This is, the, this is Jesus, the perfect son of God who was never created. He has always been. Yet in humility, he took on humanity, not as a prophet or as a man seeking to try to earn his way into a Godhead, but as God himself, humbly clothing himself in a world that would kill him. And that truth, Paul, Paul doesn't just give us that truth to pique our curiosity and to go, huh, that's kind of cool. This truth should transform our lives, not just answer our theological questions. In fact, this raises more theological questions for me than it answers, but this is meant to transform me. And so it's easy for me to just think right off the bat that if this is true, this theory, and this bottom point of Jesus's life where he died on the cross, if that's where I enter into the story, then surely I just join him. And everything in my life after that point is just upward trending, right? It's all gonna be good. And if it's not, that means that I've done something wrong because Jesus only has the best in store for me. But that's not the story that we're given in scripture or even the story that we've seen in this passage because what did Paul talk about right before this? He says that your path to following Jesus is on this side. Jesus is gonna take care of the rest. You better believe exaltation's coming, but not before servanthood and sacrifice. And sometimes we complicate Christianity so much and think like, what does it look like to actually follow him? The disciples were questioning like, Jesus, how are we gonna know where you're gonna go? How do we follow you? And Jesus is like, just remember what I've done and follow me. I am the way. That's how you're gonna know. And true unity for the body of Christ comes when we jump on this downward track together. Everybody's setting aside status and rank for the benefit of those around us. 
Christ has called his people, us, into his story of humility. And when you can lock this visual into your mind, I'm telling you, you're gonna see it everywhere. You're gonna start seeing that this is actually the best path to healthy friendships. This is actually the best path to being the best coworker. This is the best path to having the healthiest marriage. Anytime I officiate a wedding, I make this a central point, that if you want to have a healthy, fruitful marriage, you have to learn to serve each other. Husband and wife, both taking the towel to wash feet and serve each other. You'll see this trend throughout scripture. In men's morning on Wednesday mornings, we've been looking through a Sermon on the Mount. So a few weeks ago, we got to the Beatitudes. That's what we started with. And you start to see, this is Jesus' call for his people on earth. He says, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. Right? This upward trend, it'll fill your wallet, it'll fill your ego, but the path with Jesus is where you will fill your soul and find life with him. And we have to live for something. Paul says, if you remember from last week, that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mark led us through that uh, in here, and then second service actually got to go hear Kyle Plunkett, one of our student pastors, uh, preaching to you guys, to the FSM students. And I will never forget what he said. He put up this slide, and he said, if you put anything besides Christ in this first blank, anything, death ends it. Right? If to live is popularity, death ends it. To live is money, or luxury, death ends it. If it's love, romance, success, whatever, it does not matter. Death absolutely ends that. But when Christ is there, when we say, but to live is Christ, it actually flips death to be a gain. And I'm not saying death is easy or no joke, because outside of Jesus, I don't know what I have to look forward to after death, nothing. But with him, I have everything, because the only thing left in that moment is Jesus. And I know this to be true, right? I know what we've seen in the text, that, okay, this beautiful Christology of who Jesus is and his humility. And I know that he's called me to live like that, but sometimes I struggle with, but what's the connection? What's actually going to actualize this and make me live as Christ? And there's a short little verse that's hidden in here that I skipped, that I wanna go back to. And it's so easy. It's one of those verses you just read through and get to the next thing. But it's Philippians chapter two, verse five. And I think it's the, the key, the connector to seeing these two things. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or another way of putting it is have the mind of Christ because it's the mind of Christ that will connect to these two. You may read that and go, great, just, I guess that's good, but what does that actually do? Let me help you kind of see what I think Paul's really intending here with this whole visual of the mind. I've been reading Leviticus and studying Leviticus, and there's lots of crazy cool truths foreshadowing like what Christ is gonna accomplish on our behalf. And if you'll remember from the Old Testament, like Christ's sacrifice is not the first sacrifice that attempted to atone for sin. God had commanded his people for a long time to kill innocent animals, right, so that fellowship with him could be restored. And so often we say the reason that Christ's sacrifice worked and it was different from the others was because that he was innocent, but so were all these animals, right? So there's an image that I think helps, and it's in the Old Testament, when priests would sacrifice animals, you know where they would put their hand? On the head of the animal. And what it was symbolizing was this transference of the guilt from someone who was guilty into something that was innocent. 
but why did it not fully work? Why? So many things to answer about that, but I think this is at the core of it. These animals did not consent to this. Not a single one of them. I get this image of them being drugged there, being tied up, thrown over a shoulder, whatever it looks like, being taken to this, offer, uh, this altar. Not one animal ever said, hey, kill me so that you can live. In fact, every single one of them had to be held down, fighting to the last breath to try to stay alive, taking on the guilt of something that they did not deserve. But Jesus, in his perfection, did not fight because he had the mind to choose. He looked around, he saw Jesus, or he saw the Father, he saw us, right? He saw himself, and he chose obedience in that moment, knowing what it would lead him to. This was a voluntary decision. I glanced over that in the text, but notice the scripture said that Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself. He had the mind to choose, and he chose it. And it shows us that the cross isn't the only thing that hinges our salvation. It's what led into it and what led out, out of it. The mind to choose, humil choose humility and the power to raise himself from the dead. This is the gospel of Jesus that we have to preach and that people have to see in us. This is the gospel of humility that bridges barriers, that bridges divides, it breaks down barriers. This is the gospel of grace that humbles us every single day, the gospel of sacrifice that makes us want to serve because this is what Christ has done for us. This is the gospel that propels us to want to make disciples who know the authentic Jesus and get to find the same life and joy that we find because he had the mind to choose and he chose us. These are the truths that we have to consistently remind ourselves of. And no doubt, Jesus knew that we would forget, right? We're human. And so he set up a couple of things to help us remember. Number one, I think we've already gotten to see, baptism. There were tears there's weeping happening. I'm crying as I'm watching because this isn't just dunking in water. This is a visual that we're seeing in that chart of being buried with Christ in baptism, raised to new life because of what he's done on the cross. And an individual gets to identify with that and say, hey, don't worship me. Worship the Savior who has changed my life and brought me life. And then the second thing he gives us is communion, something that we get to do together in a space like this where we get to take these elements, the bread and the juice, and sit and not just remember what Christ has done on our behalf, but to identify with him, right? As Paul says in Galatians 2.20 2 that he's been crucified with Christ, we get to visually show that like, Jesus, we're on this track with you. We wanna step into whatever you've called us to. So as we pass these, I wanna invite you to hold them until the end of the service. Uh, Peter will come back up and lead us through that. So if you need to set them down so that you can stand and worship, go for it. If you need to sit in prayer and be with the Lord Jesus in this morning, go for it. But this is a heavy weight to think that the path Jesus has called us to is a downward one, one of service and humility. But I wanna leave you with this and allow you to sit in this moment with Jesus as we go to worship him as king. That if he found you and me worth dying for, then surely he's worth living for. And surely he's worthy of our praise, even in this moment together. So sit with him, and then we're gonna go to him in worship.
What a privilege it is to corporately remember Jesus, the one who's before all things, the one because of him, all things hold together. The one who created all things is also the one who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross on behalf of us. And we have the privilege of taking these elements to remember this, his body broken for us and his blood poured out on our behalf, hallelujah. So I invite you to take of the bread and take of the juice and remember and give thanks that now we have the privilege of going before the throne of grace. Access has opened to him because of his mercy and grace that he has lavished upon you. So let us remember and take of the elements. I have a couple of announcements before you head out. If you're new like me, uh, we have a newcomers meeting and we wanna get to know you. We wanna let you know uh, what's available. We wanna connect you. And that is um, over at the FSM building. I'm gonna find an usher to lead me to where that is because I'm not sure exactly where that is. Um, and if you have any prayer needs, Jeff and Chris are over here. We wanna pray for you. They're there to pray for you. So uh, please head over there if you need some prayer. Other than that, church, have a great week. Trust in the Lord and walk with him. Amen.